We are back at Genesis this morning, looking at the life of Abraham. We're picking up in chapter 18. There's an outline uh, of the sermon provided for you in the bulletin, if you'd like to follow along in that way. Chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at the first half of chapter 18 this week, verses 1 through 15. So Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. You can find the sermon passage in your bulletin, or you can look at it in your own Bibles or the Pew Bibles. Genesis 18, continuing the life of Abraham. Let us hear the word of God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memory as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that you are a God who knows us. You are a God who speaks to us and often in ways that we find it hard to believe. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help our unbelief, that you would strengthen our faith in your word. I pray, God, that you would use me to faithfully proclaim your word, to be strong in my weakness, to use me in spite of my sin, and that you would give us ears to hear your word today. Spirit, work and take your word into our hearts and minds. Apply it to us. May your word be that life-giving word by which you, O God, created the heavens and the earth. Work in us and make us a new creation in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Well, today, as we look at our passage in the first half of Genesis 18, we are going to see how Abraham is a good, a positive example for us, and how Sarah is a negative example for us, a bad example. And after we do that, we're going to try to distill down to the main takeaway, where this text is pointing us in particular, even beyond their example. So the time between chapter 17, where we were last week, and chapter 18 is apparently very short, no more than maybe a month or two at most. And the Lord appears to Abraham again, even though we are not sure exactly when Abraham realized it was the Lord who appeared to him. You see, Abraham is sitting in the door of his tent trying to stay cool during the heat of the day, and he looks and he sees three men standing in front of him. Now, as readers of Genesis, we are told that this is the Lord appearing to Abraham. But we don't know for sure when Abraham knew that these three men were, in fact, divine visitors from the Lord. Because, you know, maybe Abraham had his eyes closed for a nice mid-afternoon nap in the heat of the day and just three men showed up when he opened his eyes. Maybe the three men came from around the back of the tent and startled him. He's like, oh man, there's three guys here. So it's certainly possible that Abraham thought that these three men were merely human travelers. It is possible that Abraham wanted to be hospitable to these three travelers who were hot and tired and hungry. After all, hospitality to strangers was far more important in the ancient world. There were no hotels. There were no Starbucks. There were no air-conditioned vehicles. You depended on the hospitality of others when you traveled. Yet in spite of that, a number of factors give us reason to believe that Abraham knew these were no ordinary travelers. First, their sudden appearance suggests that they did, in fact, appear out of nowhere, something normal people can't do. Second, we see that Abraham's reaction is to run out to them and bow down before them. Now, I understand that folks in ancient Canaan may not have, like, shook hands and, hey, what's up, the same way we do, but I don't think you're bowing down to people unless you think that they are superior to you. Third, this deference to these guests continues in Abraham's language. He calls one of them, O Lord, and calls himself, Your servant. And while people did say that kind of stuff, like, Your servant is at your command, again, that's usually reserved for superiors, not strangers you just met. Fourth, Abraham hopes he finds favor in the sight of his visitors desiring that they would stick around and spend time with him. You'd expect that would be the opposite, that these visitors would hope to find favor with this guy who might have something to feed them and some shelter to get them out of the heat of the day. And so this further shows that Abraham thinks these guys are special. But what really just sets it over the top is fifth and finally, the lavish lunch that Abraham provides for them. Abraham said, may I bring you a morsel of bread? And then he prepares a feast. Three seahs of flour is more than 20 liters of flour. I'm sorry, we're Americans. It's more than 90 cups of flour. Okay, you don't know what a liter is. I understand. It's fine. 90 cups of flour. That's a lot 
for three people, okay? Abraham doesn't just get 90 cups of flour ready. He also goes and finds a tender and good calf to slaughter for meat. And then he gets curds and milks for a side. Abraham gets this mere morsel together for three travelers, showing hospitality at a level where he thinks these people are worthy of such extravagant service. And so for all those reasons, Abraham probably knew early on that these three visitors were a manifestation of the Lord. Now, as Christians, we typically want to make a quick jump to, hey, there's three of them. Hey, it's the Lord, Trinity, ding, 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 God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that is a very good instinct, and I commend you if you have already gone there. But at the beginning of chapter 19, we are told that two of these men are angels who are going to Sodom after visiting Abraham. And that suggests that these three men are representative of the Lord and kind of his two angelic bodyguards, if you will, who are there to go and check out Sodom, as we'll see in chapter 19. So why three men then? Why does God appear to him in this way? What well, seems the Lord is being very accommodating. If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, when God appears, he doesn't always have to be this accommodating. God can show up as a pillar of fire, as a burning bush, as a brilliant glory that blinds you. And yet here he appears as three men initiating a kind of favorable meeting among friends. And Abraham recognizes this. You could read what he says in verses 3 through 5 as him thinking, whoa, God has just showed up in a way that I can spend time with him and serve him. I want that very much, and I want to give him my very best. And that's exactly what Abraham does. He goes above and beyond in preparing this meal for his heavenly visitors. Now, Abraham knows that God doesn't need food or refreshment. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get hungry. But if this is how God has chosen to appear to Abraham, then he's going to serve him the best way he knows how out of gratitude for what God has already done for him and what God has promised to do for him. And so Abraham wanted to give God the best he had to offer in a way that is a good example for us. Abraham wanted to give God the best he had to offer. How often are we tempted to give God less than our best? How often are we satisfied with serving God whenever we get around to it? Like it's organizing our sock drawer or cleaning the gutters. Like, okay, I get, I'll do that next week. Today's not a good day. Abraham shows us a better way. He is given an opportunity to serve the Lord and he seizes that opportunity with enthusiasm that whatever else is on his schedule on this hot day can wait because I get to serve the Lord right now. Now, granted, we may not have God show up as three people right in front of us. We may not have a calf that we can slaughter. We may not even know how to slaughter the calf. I don't know how to do that, all right? We may not know. 
And so how do we serve the Lord? Well, there's three common ways we can think about it. People have used this before. This isn't unique to me. That we can serve God with our time, our talents, and our treasure. So how do we use our time? Do we use our time to give God the best? Do we make sure we set aside time to worship God on Sunday morning? Do we make time to pray, to study the Bible, whether with others or on our own? Do we carve out time in our busy schedules, for everyone is busy, in order to serve others in our church and in our community? Or does God get whatever time happens to be left over? Does he get the Sundays when we aren't busy with something else? Or does God get the best of our time? What about our talents? Do we prayerfully consider how God has gifted us uniquely to serve him? Do we think about, what am I good at? Like, what do I do reasonably well? And how could that be used for the kingdom of God? Or do we let a false humility justify our belief that we have nothing to offer the Lord? Do we presume that we are only capable of good earthly work and not good spiritual work? Does God get the best of our talents? And what about our treasure? Do we think about how best to give our money to the Lord? Do we seek to invest in God's kingdom so as to reap heavenly and kingdom treasures in the spiritual realm? Or do we give as an afterthought? Do we give what's left? Or do we give as an intentional act of service to the Lord who's given us so much? Does God get the best of our treasure? You see, Abram shows us an example of someone seeking to give only the best to the Lord through his service. Abraham had this unique opportunity to serve the Lord, and so we may think, well, that's him, that's not us. Well, guess what? We each have unique opportunities to serve the Lord. Because God in his providence has placed each of us in a different place around different people that only we are in a position to serve. And so we all have a unique opportunity. So let us, like Abraham, look for these opportunities to serve our generous and great God with the best that we have to offer. So in that way, Abraham is our, our positive example to follow. And Sarah gives us this negative example to avoid. Now, please don't think that the Bible consistently presents Sarah as a bad apple. Abraham makes his fair share of mistakes. We've already seen some. We'll see some again. Sarah just happens to be the one who messes up in this story. And her sin is not necessarily eavesdropping on the Lord and his conversation with Abraham. The sin that Sarah specifically commits in this chapter is her skeptical snicker at God's promise. That when she hears God say that Sarah will bear a son to Abraham at the age of 90, she finds it too absurd to be possible. (laughs) And you know what? We do too. 
It just doesn't make any sense to us. I mean, Abraham and Sarah were not able to have children when they were young. Why would they be able to have kids when he's 100 and she's 90? Sarah's body has already moved through menopause. Beyond that, Sarah knows her body. She knows this is not gonna happen. And so she scoffs at God's promise. She's like, that's beyond what even God could do. She snickers at the very idea that she would finally get pregnant after so many years of trying. Sarah's issue, her sin, is that she doubted God's ability to do what he promised to do. She didn't think it was possible. And she reacted from a position of disbelief. Now I want you to notice, this is different from our Old Testament reading where Gideon asked for those signs in the fleece. In that instance, Gideon recognized, God, you're asking something that's crazy. But I want to believe it. I want confirmation that this seemingly impossible thing will come true. He wanted to believe. Sarah, on the other hand, ruled out belief. Did not want to believe. She dismissed the promise. And so how does God respond to Sarah's dismissive doubts? Well, initially, God speaks directly to Abraham, knowing Sarah's going to overhear him again. And he says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Now, at this point, Sarah tries to cover her sin with another sin, claiming she didn't laugh. And I love that last line where God's like, no, you laughed. Just flat out like, no, you laughed. And like story ends there pretty much and moves on to something different. And so what we see is God gently persisting in correcting Sarah. God doesn't respond in anger. He responds gently to her sinful doubts. He identifies her specific sin and he speaks specific truth that she needs to hear to overcome her skepticism. God doesn't rescind the promise and be like, all right, I guess you don't believe. You're not getting the thing I wanted to give you. He doesn't do that. But he does expose her doubts and he leads her to trust in his promises. Those very hard to believe promises. God wants Sarah to trust him because he wants her to trust that he is capable of doing whatever he promises to do, even if it seems totally impossible to us. And that's a good place for us to just settle in with verse 14. Because verse 14 is pretty great. God says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? A version of that question is quoted by Jesus in our New Testament reading. And it's a great verse to remember. Is there anything that's too hard for the Lord? No. But it's also a verse we need to interpret correctly. So I want to look at two big truths that are clearly taught by that verse. First, this verse tells us that God can indeed do what seems impossible to us. He can do 
what seems impossible to us. The key word there is can. God is fully capable of doing great and awesome things in answer to our prayers. We can and should pray big prayers to our big God who is powerful enough to work miracles in answer to our prayers. But we also need to recognize that this verse does not tell us that God will necessarily answer those in the way we want Him to. It does not say God will give us whatever we ask like a genie. And so hearing that, we need to ask ourselves, does does that make us want to pray less or more? Does the possibility that God could answer our seemingly impossible requests make us want to pray more or less? Are we discouraged because, well, God might not answer it. So I guess I'm just not going to pray. Or are we encouraged because perhaps God will answer this request because I know He can. In other words, do we expect the best from God? Or do we hesitate to ask? Protecting ourselves from potential disappointment. I mean, an easy example for us here, especially after Vicky mentioned Relay for Life this morning, is you or someone you love has cancer and the doctor has said it's terminal. God could heal that person. He can do miracles. It's impossible to everyone else, but He could do it. He might choose not to for some reason that we don't understand in His wise providence. But He might also choose to heal them. So why not pray for that? Why not pray for what you know is impossible apart from God? Why not trust that God could do great things knowing that He may not, but He's going to keep doing good. You see, we so often believe that God is going to work all things for good that it can keep us from praying for good things because we're worried, God's just not going to do that. Let's expect the best from God. It may not be the best we have in mind, but let's pray for the best and expect the best, knowing God can do it, and He might. Perhaps He will. So that's the first big thing we see here. God can answer impossible requests. The second big truth we learned for verse 14 is that we need to trust that God will surely do whatever He has promised no matter how impossible it may seem. You see, God is specifically telling Sarah, I'm going to do what I've promised to do. I don't care if you think it's impossible. I'm doing it. I know you've been barren your whole life. I know you've been frustrated for decades without having a child. I know your body is incapable of bearing a child. But you know what? I'm going to make it work. I can do that. No obstacle, no difficulty, no barrier will stand in the way from me keeping my promises. I don't care how impossible it seems, I'm doing it. And so in this way, verse 14 should bolster our faith in God's specific promises to His people. 
And so for those of you who've sinned, all of you, okay, know that God has promised to forgive you if you trust in Jesus. I know you may have sinned that sin a billion times. You may have really hurt somebody. You may be still dealing with the fallout of the consequences. You may be racked with guilt every single day about it. God says He forgives it. Believe that promise. No matter how impossible it can seem. God has also promised that whoever believes in Jesus will live even though we die. That's hard to believe sometimes. It's hard to believe when you're standing at the cemetery and the casket's going into the ground. It's hard to believe when the one you love is still gone. You can't see that they're alive. And yet God says they live even though they die. It doesn't matter how impossible that seems, but their bodies have decayed and decomposed. How can that be true that they will live? They will. Nothing is too impossible for God. Is anything too hard for God? God, we cremated them. How's that going to work? Nothing is too hard for God. All right? Nothing. If He has promised it will be so, if He has specifically promised it will be so, you can count on it. No matter what. We should expect only the best of our faithful God. And so He has promised us many things. Believe Him. He will do them. And so as we consider these examples here in our text of Abraham and Sarah, we need to to then push towards this main takeaway. And that is in order for us to expect the best from God and to give Him, to serve Him with our best, we need to believe in a great God who is truly the best. And the word the Bible uses for best is glory. Now, when we think of glory, we might think of bright and shiny lights and brilliance and sparkles and something like that. But the word glory actually means weighty, heavy. You can think about gravitational pull if you want. And guess what? It just so happens that very expensive, valuable, shiny, brilliant metals are heavy. Well, there is no weightier, greater good in all the universe than God. Nothing matters more. Nothing is more desirable than God, that He is the most glorious being. And our problem is we don't often see God that way. And what we need in order to expect the best and to give the best is to see Him that way. Is to see His glory. We need to see He is more glorious than everything in all the world. And to do that, we need to magnify God's glory. Magnifying does not make things bigger. You just see them more clearly. That object remains the same. And so God's glory is always there. We just need to see it better. To better appreciate His greatness. To understand Him more clearly. And as we better appreciate His glory, we will expect better things from Him. And we will want to give more unto Him. And there is no clearer, better magnifying glass for the glory of God than the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest magnifying glass in all the world. I included in your sermon outline the words of Romans 5, verses 7 and 8. 
Paul writes that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows His glory in dying for sinners while we were sinners. Not waiting for us to clean up our acts, but while we were still His enemies, He's like, I'm dying for these people to save them and change their hearts. See, that death of Jesus fulfills God's great promises that seemed, how could God keep these promises? How could God keep His promise to bless His people whom He loves? But this people is a sinful bunch of people that needs to be judged for their sin. How can this promise and this promise be kept? It's impossible to keep both of them except for the cross. And on the cross, we see the love of God that He made a way for sinners like us to be saved. And we see the justice and holiness of God that our sin is still punished in Christ. And so there at the cross, the glory of God is magnified. This season, as we come up to Easter in less than a month, look to the cross to see the glory of God. Let it be magnified before your eyes. Know that God has done great things for you. The best things in all the world. Know that you have found favor with God. That you are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And this promise is for all who believe. For all who believe. And it may seem hard to believe. Perhaps even impossible. But we have a tender God who encourages belief. Sending His Spirit to help us believe and so be saved. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for the great glory of the cross. We thank You that You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise and we can never praise You enough. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to see You magnified in our hearts, in our minds, in our worship, and in Your Word. And we pray that you would help each of us to expect the best of you. That you would help each of us to serve you with our best. But most of all, O God, help us to believe. To believe in you and so be saved. To delight and to be people of the cross. Who boast in the cross and are not ashamed of it, but delight in telling others the good news of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.